good evening. Welcome to Bethany Bible Church. We are delighted that you are here with us on this very important evening as we have our worship service and the laying on of hands for our dear brother, Dr. Paul Twiss. I'm going to resist wishing you a happy Twistmas. I'm not going to resist that. Year after year, I'm going to resist that, but not tonight. We are grateful that you are here, and this, as you know, is probably something that is not real common, to be able to have such a smooth transition and a handoff from one to another. I tried to go to a local sporting goods store to see if I could find a baton, but I was unable to do so. So we'll just have to do it with a handshake, I think. But we are delighted to be able to have all of you out tonight as we think of these days. It is quite interesting for me as an older person and for Paul as a younger person, at least younger than me, because I was thinking back to the time when I first met and became friends with John MacArthur. And that was in June of 1983. And just three months prior to that, on March 15th, Paul Twist was born. <laughs> but you know, while that's uh, a bit humorous, it's also something that you see and should see in the body of Christ. And that is uh, when the older folks need to be put out to pasture, you have the opportunity to have a 38-year-old man who is quite gifted and capable who can take the reins and to be able to see the Lord do in this place what I would not be able to do for the next, say, 30 years. And because of that, we should rejoice. Let's pray together, and after my prayer, then I want you to stand and let's sing to the glory of God, all right? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have brought us tonight to a place where our beloved Paul can be installed and can be rejoicing along with us and we with him so that you are honored as he embarks upon his ministry from this pulpit. Thank you for the opportunity to see such a smooth transition, such a wonderful handing off of one man's ministry to another. Thank you for this God-blessed place. Thank you for the sweet unity that we enjoy. And may this day, not only this morning, but tonight as well, be a, a stamp of unity upon Paul's ministry. Give him all that you would want him to have so that he might be effective here and that manifold numbers of people will come to Christ and that the gospel would go out far and wide to the nations. We thank you for the opportunity now to sing to your glory. May we do so with robust hearts and great voices. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.
Ladies, it was beautiful. Well, today is certainly a unique one for me and for many, many others of you. Today, believe it or not, to the very Sunday is the exact seven-year mark of our starting a church together here in Thousand Oaks. To the very Sunday. I believe it was 13 of us who, as a core group, held our first ever worship service on that first Sunday in January of 2015, Thousand Oaks Bible Church. And then there was a merger 
between two churches, ourselves and Bethany Church. And then in 2018, after that merge in October of 2016, there was yet another merger with the Bridge Church in Moorpark. And then, through those years, we were having folks who were coming and saying things like, what's going on up there on that hill? We hear about church splits and factions and disgruntled people splitting churches, but what's going on on the hill where people are actually merging together? And I'll never forget it. We had some initial trying days, didn't we? And it was because there were disparate groups who were coming and trying to determine in their minds, uh, should we stay or go? Should we affirm this or not? And I remember very, very clearly that from October of 2016 until December of 2017, even though we had very, very challenging days, the Lord was blessing, but we didn't have the kind of sweet unity that we longed for until that Sunday morning, the first Sunday of December 2017, where I mentioned that my dear Beth had terminal cancer. And if you remember, we haven't seen any disunity from that Sunday onward. Now, I don't think it's all attributable to that, but I do think that people who at that time, or at least up to that time, were thinking more about themselves perhaps, or more about what they wanted in a church, or more about what they would think others should be doing that they weren't doing, all came to an end. And it was all things like this, what can we do to help? How can we minister to you and your family? How can we minister to each other? How can we pull together? And the Lord has continued, even long after her home going, to bring sweet fellowship and unity to our blessed congregation, for which I'm so deeply grateful. You have been the highlight of my ministry. I know someone's going to say, well, then why are you leaving? If you find a good church, you better stay there. And the answer is, I suspect if Beth were still here, I probably would be too. But I think the Lord had another plan. And it didn't take the death of my wife, but including in his providence the death of my wife, I think it was also a time for me in my 60s to answer questions that I'd long to answer, and that was, how can a person who has desires and gifts and abilities to, to be involved in academics or the training of men or the multiplying of pastors do that in a church but still not have the opportunity to do that on a wider, more dynamic level? And so, of course, when the Expositors Seminary brethren spoke to me and encouraged me to think about doing something like this in light of those providential events in my life. It was something I needed to pray about. And you remember, for nine months, I prayed. Now, you didn't know it during the time. I told you that later, but the reason why it took so long was because I had you in my heart. 
And that was extremely difficult to try to work my way through seeing us part from one another. Sort of reminds me of Paul's Acts 20 experience with the elders at Ephesus there on the island of Miletus where it says they repeatedly kissed him. And I think that there's probably going to be a lot of kissing going on tonight at the reception. But all things are good. The Lord is good. He does good and he is good. So I want to give you a charge tonight. I want to give a charge both to the congregation and to our beloved Paul. I want to be able to charge both of us because I think in that sense collectively you and also Paul need to be charged. That is to be challenged. And it really is biblical. We'll share with you some passages in which the Apostle Paul says, I charge you. So I want to start out tonight with this charge by talking about the biblical precedent for such a charge. As I said, and if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, the way I'm going to go about things is not to do an expository message per se as such, but I do want to share a number of passages with you and then, then just make some parenthetical comments about those passages. Now, I know Lance's parenthetical common, uh, comments uh, are messages in and of themselves. I do realize that, but I'll try to keep myself to only about two hours. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaks these words to his beloved Timothy, his disciple in the faith. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Notice this next line, the aim of our charge. So Paul is charging Timothy, but Paul is also acknowledging his own charge, the charge he received from the Lord Jesus himself. The aim of our charge is love. That is, I'm charged to love. Timothy, you also are charged to love. And the entire apostolic band is charged to love. A love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is certainly a charge. And this, of course, is a charge for our brother Paul. But it's a charge not just for him singularly, though specifically, it's a charge through him to all of us. Look at verses 18, 19, and 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 
By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You see the level of importance to this charge? This is spiritual warfare. And did you notice also that phrase in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience? Sacred deposit. In these pastoral epistles, Paul speaks of it as a sacred deposit. It's a trust. And that's not just what a pastor is to hold tightly, but also a congregation. You also have that charge to not only respond applicationally to what the preacher is saying, but also to live it out and to defend it. This is what we're called to do. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And notice this by way of application for you, Bethany Bible Church. Here's what you are, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You're that, you're that solid, sustaining people who wants to commit yourself to upholding the truth. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And here's this beautiful prosaic language. He was manifested, that is Jesus, in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Isn't that glorious? And then 1 Timothy chapter 4. No, I'm going quickly, but time will necessitate. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says, In later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is, this is real. The idea of the sacred deposit, the pillar and buttress of the truth, the holding fast to the faith. Why? Because the Spirit is saying that in later times, some will depart from that faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And then, of course, he gives a few examples. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Ever the pastor, Paul gives examples of such wrongheadedness, such denial of the truth. And then he says in verse 6, Speaking again to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Healthy doctrine, hygienic doctrine. This will keep you alive through all eternity. The good doctrine. 
for what are we fortified against? Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now this is a great charge. And as I'm saying, it's a great charge not just for the man of God, though it is chiefly for him, it is also through him to you. And as I was thinking about what I might share with you tonight, my mind kept racing to old Israel of God. And even, Paul said it this morning, the prophetic word spoken in two ways, that God is going to judge and God has a Messiah who will redeem you from your sins. Remember that this morning? Well, that thought just kept ruminating in my mind, the idea of the judgment of the prophets. God was going to judge Israel because they'd long left the idea of Yahweh and His truth and His love and His grace. And so they were going to be judged. I think one of the chief ways that Yahweh was going to judge His people was because they had left the Word of God behind. All the things that Paul is telling Timothy here, you you have to know the truth and love the truth, and live the truth, and speak the truth, and defend the truth. And when I think about old Israel, I think about all of the things they did that were the very opposite of that. So for you as a congregation, I think it would be a good word for us to go back to the prophet Jeremiah. Would you go there with me? Jeremiah's prophecy while you're finding it. Jeremiah's consistent message to the nation of Judah was of repentance and a returning to Yahweh. This weeping prophet prophesied of judgment from the reign of King Josiah in 627 B.C. until maybe sometime even beyond the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. And while we can't go through all of this prophecy, of course, it's far too long, we at least can see a few places where through the prophet God was calling his people to repentance, to repent of their sin and to return to what we might call covenant faithfulness. And this is so applicable to us. You can read something like the prophecy of Jeremiah and say, I'm not sure that's Israel. I think that's the United States of America. I think that's everybody who says, I know Jesus, I go to church, I've walked an aisle, I've signed a card, I love Jesus, sure I do. And then when you examine the life, you say there is no such thing. So look in your Bibles at Jeremiah chapter 4. I wish I could read whole sections, but just a few verses, a few parenthetical comments and particularly now when I get to some of them that speak of the idea of their having forsaken God's word, I'm going to accentuate those words. 
Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1. Here, here's this appeal. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. I mean, it's only right that you should return if you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver. And if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, there's one, in justice and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. How graphic is that? O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Isn't that indictment? Verse 5, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say. Now this is what God was prophesying, of course, through that the lips of Jeremiah, declaring through his lips, blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities, raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out, he has gone out from his, from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant, for this put on sackcloth. Lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. For people to be covenantally faithful, they haven't been. Not by a long shot. Look at verse 14. O Jerusalem. Wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved, that is, delivered. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah like keepers of a field. Are they against her all around? For she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. Verse 22. But my people have failed me. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise, dash, in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. How about Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 3, O Israel, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. This is a a response even from some of the judgment that's coming upon them, and and they're not even responding. You've consumed them. They've refused to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. They've refused to repent. This is 
sad state of affairs. Verse 18, but even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. There's always going to be a remnant. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in the land that is not yours. And that's certainly what has happened. You can read all the way through the rest of the chapter. How about Jeremiah chapter 8? This is powerfully convicting. Sad. Sad but true. Verse 4. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I've paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her time, and the turtle dove, swallow and crane, keep the green coming. But my people know not, listen to this, they know not the rules principles of God. He goes on to say in verse 8, how can you say we are wise when the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. That means those who were the religious elite, the religious leaders, were also in it for their own gain, and they turned falsehood into truth, or so they assumed, or truth into falsehood. That's what's going on. Verse 9, the wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, listen to this, behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is there? I like the NASB here. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom people who come into a church, sit down in a pew, they make claims about their spiritual life, they say they're okay with God, never forget John MacArthur, when I was his assistant, we were on a radio program and he'd written a book and this particular female commentator was conversing with him, asking him questions, and when they went to a break, it was obvious that John knew that this woman had no clue about what it meant to be a Christian, Christian radio station. And the way she was asking the questions, it was quite clear she didn't have an understanding of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So during the break, John said, tell me a little bit of your, your testimony. 
She said, oh, it was, it was wonderful. I got Jesus' phone number. chat. And now he and I are friends. She went on to explain a few things, but John in his inimical style said, God bless you, you're my friend. Here's what it really means to know that you're saved. You see, there are a lot of people who make claims, fantastical claims, of being right with God, of following Jesus, but when you examine most often their lifestyle, you'll know a different thing. I suspect there are things here in Jeremiah's day that would be eerily similar. People saying, I'm right with God. I, I do my chores. I, I go to the worship center. I do my sacrificing. I mean, God and I are good with each other. And it wasn't so. And one of those main reasons that it isn't so is because they've left the knowledge, the understanding, the application of the Word of God by the wayside. And that's what happens to a church that doesn't exalt the Word of God in the right context. You don't have someone who is explicating that word in a way for which both the real, actual, tangible meaning is being expressed and the application of that coming to bear on the ground. And, and these kinds of things in Jeremiah's day are in our day as well. If I go back to chapter chapter 6 of Jeremiah, I'm going to skip that chapter because I wanted us to go to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? You see, that's, that's what we've got to have. We've got to have the warning. All of us have to be warned about impending doom. So that we may hear, that is, really hear, really hear the truth. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, listen to this, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure. Verse 16 of this chapter. Thus says the Lord. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Yet there is none. Here's what you have. I can just hear it now. We got a new thing going on at church. In fact, we call it New Church. I tell you, I think if I hear the, the next nouveau riche church name, I'm going to be ill. 
it doesn't really matter ultimately what you call your church. But if you think the real key is all in the new and the popular and the grand and the next going thing or person or it, I say stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient where the good way is. Nevertheless, stand before the God of the universe to give an account for our individual lives, but also in the corporate gathering of our lives, lives as a local body, a local church ministry, in order to give an account to God for what we did at the ancient stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and it is there where you will find rest for your souls. God summons us as a congregation to tread with God's own word of wisdom so that it will guide us likewise challenging us to consider will we as a church continue to rely on the self same word that old cherished solid foundation the foundation of the very word of God will we as a church body continue to take our stand on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles according to Ephesians 2 continuing to proclaim Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone? Or will we choose to stand by the crossroads and ask for the old testament? I don't have to ask for something new. also come together. That's what we're doing. Did you hear the charge of our brother this morning that this is the Lord's day? I'm, I'm thrilled with a number of you for how this has gone. And I know every single one of you gets a text every single week. I've preached that for seven years, haven't I? 
this is the perfect condition This is the way that you and I grow spiritually, both individually, but I think collectively as a family. And it's precisely because of choosing as a body to stay on the right path. The right path, the old path, the ancient path. Because the old path Precisely what Jeremiah is challenging his people to do, and is now what I'm challenging you to do. I think of my son Matthew yesterday, who January 1st celebrated his birthday. And it's impressive to me how old he is when I'm only 33. civilization now stands at the crossroads. We have started down the road to destruction, perhaps, but the way of life still stretches out before us. The ethical dilemmas we face show that we are at the crossroads. Will we cherish the lives of the innocent, or will we permit abortion and eugenics? Will we protect the lives of the defenseless, or will, will we allow involuntarily, involuntary euthanasia? Will we preserve the sanctity of marriage, or will we tolerate no-fault divorce and homosexual marriage union? Will we love the true and the beautiful, or will we gaze upon images of sex and violence? These are the questions that culture faces at the crossroads. The evangelical church is also standing at the crossroads. 
Will we glorify God in our worship or will we entertain ourselves? Will we bear witness to the law of God and the grace of the gospel or will we tone down our message so as not to offend anyone? Will we expound the eternal word of God or will we seek some new revelation? Will we defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone or will we add works to grace? These are the questions the church faces when it stands at the crossroads. Perhaps you are at a personal crossroads. Some Christians wonder what God wants them to do with their lives. Others contemplate a change of career, the pursuit of a new educational opportunity, the possibility of marriage, or a change of ministry within the church. Still others wrestle with deep spiritual questions, wondering who Jesus Christ is or if the Bible is really true. The thing to do at such times is to recognize that you are standing at a crossroads. Two roads stretch before you. You can go in only one of two directions. Either you can keep going the way you've been going, or you can go down a different road altogether. Your destiny depends on which road you take. The second step is to ask for direction. When a nation, a church, or an individual comes to a crossroads, it helps to have good road signs, good direction, or a good map. Jeremiah knew what kind of directions to give. Ask for the ancient paths, he said. Ask where the good road for the ancient paths, he did not mean to suggest living in the past. He was not nostalgic. He did not propose that old-time religion, quote-unquote. He did not tell God's people to live in the past. Instead, he tells us to walk here and now according to the word of God. The ancient path is the good way. The good way is the way marked out in the scriptures. According to God himself, the problem with the people of Jerusalem was that they have not listened to my words and have rejected my law. In other words, they made a bad choice back at the crossroads. The reason they made a bad choice is that they rejected
do not forget the gifts that you have. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Do not neglect the gifts you have, which were given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid them out. yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this work, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. If you do this, every minister of the gospel needs to have First Timothy 4 etched in them deeply. And secondly, Second Timothy 3 says this in verses 1 to 5, I charge, there it is again, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This would be 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, great prayer promise for you and your congregation.
that our minds would be washed with truth. And that we would commit ourselves to the discipline of God, both in public and private, to receive the labors of Paul and those who would seek truth. Father, we thank you for this day and moment. Help our faith to rise. Help our eyes to see. Lord, help our words to be stirring, to apply ourselves to the teaching of your word, that we might transform our lives like those who are few moments we'll have a time of call down the hall in the community room uh, tonight as a little bit of a reflection um, and we're looking forward to a little bit of this every Sunday night so this will be a little bit larger than the, the normal Sundays that we do uh, Sunday nights that we do um, but a nice uh, kickoff a, a kick of it tonight it's uh, hopefully great to follow the family we've already done that this is the marker of a new ministry as we start to lay that before the family. Thanks to the Lord for bringing the prophets, that's why the prophets are here, all the prophets here, uh, to gather with